invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. The last time we had a Sunday morning worship service when the 26th of December fell the day after Christmas, I vividly remember because before we had the service, I went up to my office and read the news headlines and reports were just coming out about the tsunami over at the Indian Ocean when hundreds of thousands of people died then and in the months that followed. But that was, uh, was that 2006 or 2004? Six. That was the last time we had, a, when the 26th of December fell on a Sunday was that, that memorable day. Uh, Philippians 4, and well, what my point was, when I come to, a, uh, to select a text on, at a time like this, I try to think back to the past year and as we look ahead to the next year, and I try to pick something that would have a lot of application more from just our personal Christian walks. And uh, I want to do that here from this passage, Philippians 4. Uh, I'll read beginning in verse 4, but I want to focus on verse 8. Hear God's word. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray together. Our Father, these are amazing promises and commands to rejoice in you always. Uh, And this promise that as we cast our burdens upon you, you will give us peace that passes all comprehension. And how we are to use our minds and what we're to think about. Uh, Give us great alertness uh, right now uh, that you would speak to us. We are not here as we recognize by accident. You have providentially brought us here. So we anticipate meeting with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Probably the best-known verses out of Philippians 4 have to do with those verses 4 and following, rejoice in the Lord always. The promise there is given that God will give a peace which transcends all understanding. God never promises to take away all our problems or to take away the circumstances that cause us anxiety, but he does promise to give us peace in the midst of those. So, that, so that's the promise. He, he promises peace there. And he says it's a peace of God. Isaiah 26 says, You will keep perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. And so it's a peace that doesn't come from within ourselves. It comes from God himself. And it says that it surpasses comprehension. To a very large deg- degree, it will be uh, unexplainable. Uh, If you've ever witnessed someone going through a very difficult time and they have great faith in God and they seem to have a peace and you say, I just can't understand how you can have that peace. Well, that's, that's the word. It's incomprehensible, probably to that person and also to you. Here's what it does. He says that it will guard your hearts and minds. It's like a soldier posted there to protect you from the enemy. 
your hearts and minds. It will keep your heart. It will keep your emotions. It will keep your mind as far as what you think about. Uh, sometimes the mind is right. We may be thinking right, but our emotions are out of joint. Other times our emotions may seem to be at peace, but our thinking is wrong. And so God's peace guards both of those, our hearts and our minds. They will be guarded so that worry will be cast out. In the last part of the promises, he says he will do that in Christ Jesus. This is available only through uh, following Christ. It's only available for those who, who seek him, who follow him, who are trusting in him as their redeemer. Uh, and so it's not just a, a promise made in a vacuum, but it's only as we follow Christ. Now, one of the greatest inventors, of course, in American history, if not in the world, was, uh, uh, was Thomas Edison. And he had an associate who was named M.A. Rosanoff. And when I was in high school, I read about M.A. Rosanoff and that he had worked uh, at uh, Edison's desire uh, to perfect a wax that could be used in an early cylinder to, to record sounds on, like an early phonograph recording. And he had worked for over a year experimenting with waxes, trying to get just the perfect composition uh, that could hold the sounds and the things that they needed it to do. But he had just, he had failed over and over and over. And then one night, as he was uh, asleep, he awaked, and he wrote later, he said, it came like a flash of lightning. I could not shut waxes out of my mind, even in my sleep. Suddenly, through my headache and days, I saw the solution. The first thing the next morning, I was at my desk, desk and half an hour later, I had a record in the softened wax cylinder. This was the solution. He said he learned to think waxes, waxes, waxes. And then he said the solution came without effort, although months of thought had gone into the mental mill. So here was a man, M.A. Rosanoff, who had trained himself to think about waxes all of the time and finally was able to come up to a solution to a problem they have. What we put into our minds, what you put into your minds, will determine your, not only your thoughts, but also your actions, and by and large, your life. So let's look now at the next verse, verses 8 and following, of what God wants us to think about. Um, and I want to just tell you the importance of your thoughts. First, your, your thoughts are important because God knows all about them. Proverbs says the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. So it's not only deeds that God notices, it's also thoughts. Um, before God sent the flood in Noah's day to destroy the world at that time, it says in Genesis 6, 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only continually evil. Psalm 94 says, The Lord knows the thoughts of, of man. And Isaiah 66 says, I know your works and your thoughts. So if you think God is not concerned about your thoughts, you just don't understand because he is, even this very moment. He knows your thoughts and he is concerned about that. The second observation is that the gospel is concerned about your thoughts. Part of the work of Christ is to bring, the work of Christ to make us mature is that we will get to the point of bringing every thought captive to the work of Christ. And regardless of any sphere, that I will bring every, every one of my thoughts captive to Christ. 
So if the gospel, if you say you believe the gospel, if you receive that, if it's not affecting your thoughts, it's either a false gospel or you really haven't received it. If it cannot change your thinking, then it's weak. It's a weak gospel. Because the call of the gospel in Isaiah 55 is, Let the unrighteous man forsake, you know this verse, forsake what? Forsake his thoughts. Repentance is a change of mind. That's literally what the word means, a change of mind, a change in your thinking. It's a change so great that it actually changes the way you view things and and how you think. When Paul writes to believers in Romans, he says, Be transformed by the renewing, the renewing of your mind. So thinking is a very essential part not only of conversion because it involves the heart and the mind, but it's also a key part of Christian growth. I have a third observation, and that is that the power of thinking is one of God's greatest gifts to you and to me. Uh, Most of the rest of creation lives according to natural instinct. Um, But part of being made in God's image is the ability to reason, to make uh, decisions, hopefully to make responsible decisions and choices. So it matters how you use this tremendous gift that God has given to you. So I want to ask you, do you use your thinking for the glory of God? Do you honor God in your thought life? Or do you use your thinking strictly to satisfy yourself and even to dishonor God? Another observation, your thoughts express who you really are. Who you really are is in your thought life. We can easily deceive ourselves and others with actions. We can be hypocritical in our words and in our deeds, but not in our thoughts. You cannot be hypocritical in your thought life. The Bible says the thoughts of your heart reveal who and what you are more than anything else. Proverbs 23 says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And according to your thinking, that's who you really are. We can appear outwardly spiritual like the Pharisees of Jesus' day because they had this impeccable standard of life and ethics. They spent time in prayer. They knew they'd memorized far more scripture than probably we ever will. They wore special religious clothing. They kept the law. They, They fasted. They gave tithes. But the trouble was it was all outward. It was all outward things that they did. And so the Lord said, it is from the inside where the trouble is. He said, out of the heart comes evil thoughts continually. And so he condemned the Pharisees. He argued with the Pharisees because their whole attention was on the outward form of religion. They externalized religion. In other words, if I can get the outside right, then everything's okay. And that's why Christ said, it's more than just the external. And that's when he addressed such issues in the Sermon on the Mount. It's like if you think adultery is just external, he says it can happen in your heart. If you think murder is just external, it can happen in your thoughts, in your heart, uh, and so forth. And so his, his bone of contention with them was they weren't looking at the inside. They were only looking at the outside. And that's what they, and their problem was they thought that's all God looked at. And of course Christ, Christ was saying, no, it starts with the heart on the inside. So your thoughts express who you really are. R.C. Sproul, I heard on a tape 
tape. I just dated myself then. Long ago, he said, each of us is really three persons. The person we think we are, the person other people think we are, and the person God knows you are. (laughs) So each of us is all three. Another observation. The grace of God is essentially linked to our thoughts. What I mean is, the grace of God is linked to your knowledge of it. What you think about that truth from the Bible. To delight in the law of God. To meditate upon it, his word. All that involves thinking. You can't You cannot obey God if you don't know his truth, if you don't think about his truth. So all of your experience of grace in your life comes through the vehicle of your thinking. It is through our thinking that the Holy Spirit guides us into truth because our thoughts always precede our actions. On the other hand, The mark of the ungodly is their rejection in their thoughts of God, their mental rejection of God. Isaiah 65 says God refers to those who were a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good after their own thoughts. They had rejected God in their thoughts. So a person may appear to be very intelligent, very educated, have more degrees than a thermometer after their name, and yet may be a fool in the eyes of God because of his or her thoughts. And we can deceive ourselves that way. Sometimes thinking becomes a problem. It was the Apostle Paul who was no mental slouch. He was a brilliant man. He had the best education money could buy in his day. And yet it was him that said, knowledge makes arrogant. That, that's one of the... Uh, liabilities of a lot of knowledge because it typically breeds conceit. That's just kind of the nature of it. Sometimes it moves us in the wrong direction. Many of you here have read over the years Rebecca Pippert's excellent book entitled Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. The anniversary edition just came out a couple of years ago. I think it was like the 25th anniversary or something. It's been around a long time. Uh, And it's a very excellent book on personal evangelism and a lot from her own experience. Her husband was an Associated Press reporter in the Middle East and she uh, had studied uh, under R.C. Sproul and and others and so she sought to live out her faith and a lot of that book is is a record of her experiences with, with unbelieving individuals and her trying to witness to them. But she told in that book about a college biology course that she was taking when she was back in college. And the professor explained his philosophy, which is pretty typical of today's philosophy. Uh, He just said his philosophy of man and life and the world around us is that we are just a concourse of atoms, that we are meaningless pieces of protoplasm in an absurd world. And she said, we were taught that having deep regard for random products of the universe where chance is king was inconsistent. In other words, there's no place for love and compassion. She said, the professor taught that it's inconsistent to be concerned about others and about man as a whole because he is nothing more than a mass of protoplasm. And therefore, what makes him any different than a dog or a cat or anything else? And she said, he taught that day after day after day. One day, she said, our professor came into class and he was terribly depressed. 
And he was terribly depressed because his 13-year-old daughter had run away with an older man. And he said to the class, she will be deeply wounded. She will scar, and I cannot do anything to help her. I must sit back and watch a tragedy. And a student, a girl in the class, raised her hand and quietly said, According to your system, protoplasm cannot scar. And the class said, the professor said, touche. He said, I could never regard my daughter as a set of chemicals. Never. I cannot take my beliefs that far. Class dismissed. Now, that's the ineffectiveness of the world's way of reasoning, at least according to that train of thought. Well, let's look at what the passage says about what we should dwell on. I'll just go through these rather quickly. Our thoughts are our most constant activity. And so Paul assumes, God assumes, you and I do have control over our thoughts. And so when we say, I just can't help thinking about it, that's just wrong. You can help thinking about it. You can determine your thought life. You have control over that. You have habits of thought. There's a book. Uh, a friend of mine recommended a few years ago, and I, I got it, I haven't read all of it. It's called Telling Yourself the Truth. Some of you might have read it. And I marked uh, a section here where it's a little, uh, it's a little choice, uh, a quiz, and it says, uh, check the words you tell yourself in the appropriate column. And it says, are you telling yourself, and it says, this column or this column? I am dumb. Or, thank you, Lord, for giving me intelligence. People don't like me. Or, thank you, Lord, for making me likable. I have no talent. Or, thank you, Lord, for the talents you've given me. I'm miserable. I'm content. I'm lonely. Thank you, Lord, for my friends. I'm poor. Or, thank you, Lord, for prospering me. I'm nervous. Or, thank you, Lord, for peace. I'm no good. Or, thank you, Lord, for your righteousness in me. So we talk to ourselves. We talk to ourselves all the time. So what will you choose to think about this week? Here are some criteria. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, literally what is real and genuine as opposed to what is false, it's the word you use when you say the things of this world will pass away, but the realities, that which will true, is true will last. So it begins with the truth of God about the scriptures, about eternity, about the cross, about the resurrection, about who we are. Jesus said God's word is truth. In John 8, when he was talking to some of the religious leaders of his day, arguing with them, he said, you belong to your father, the devil. If you want to carry out your father's desire, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is a liar, and he wants you to think lies. Christian? So dwelling on the truth necessitates meditating on God's word. Dr. Walter Calvert, he reported on a survey about worry that only 8% of the things that most people worry about were legitimate matters of concern. In other words, you and I tend to worry about things that really aren't even legitimate. He said the other 92%, the things we worry about, are either imagined 
have never happened or involve matters over which you have no control whatsoever. Satan is a liar. He wants to corrupt your mind with lies. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul said, I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. When you believe a lie, Satan takes over and exercises great influence. So first, whatever is true, let your mind dwell on those things. Second, whatever is honorable, in other words, what is worthy of respect. Other words are noble, dignified, highly respected. Many things, obviously, are not worthy of respect. They're not honorable. Therefore, they shouldn't control our thoughts. It doesn't mean we hide our head in the sands to the plight of the world and the realities of life, but it does mean we don't focus all of our attention on dishonorable things and, and permit them to control our thoughts. Third thing he wants us to use as a criteria on what we dwell on mentally is whatever is right or just, righteous things, things that are right in God's sight. It's right to be honest between you and others. We live in a world filled with deceit and craftiness and people angling things. And you have the opposite of this. Then he goes on, whatever is pure, whatever is morally clean and undefiled. The people in Philippi to whom this was written were in a place where they were constantly bombarded with sexual temptation and impurity. They had their forms of pornography, just like are around today. You, we think a lot of these ancient sculptures were just works of art. They served another purpose. It was ancient pornography in many cases and painting and so forth. But given the culture itself, they were tempted in all areas, yet he says don't dwell on those things. Major on noble thoughts. So obviously that has great application for us today with what we allow into our minds, young men especially. And I speak as an older man. If you think one day you're going to, well, I'm just going to clean my mind up one day, it won't happen. You hang those pictures in the museum of your mind and they're there for the rest of your life. And so many of us that have been burned by those things at young ages have experienced the downside of it enough to say, I can't even look because it will be with me. It's not a one-second thing. It's the rest of your life picture that will be in your mind. And so whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, in other words, whatever is pleasing, that which is gracious, whatever is praiseworthy, what is highly regarded and well thought of, Anyway, he gives these criteria leading up to the end of verse 8. Think about such things. And to think there is not just a passing thought, is to dwell. Let your mind dwell. Let it ponder. Not a passing thought, but continual thoughts. To think about such things. I was reading a book last night before I went to sleep called Worldliness. It's a uh, book with a series of articles. I think C.J. Mahaney, the pastor from Covenant Church in, in Baltimore, he edited the book. But it's got several uh, articles in it, like uh, using your, uh, what music do you listen to, uh, movies and media, and your thought life. And, it, it was, uh, and I was reading the section on music because music played such a key role in my life. You may not. I jokingly say, I mean, I grew up playing the guitar. All I did, I would go home from school and put the headphones on to learn the songs, to play in the band. And people say, you don't, I said, I had to choose whether to go into ministry or become a rock and roll legend. 
And my cousin said, you don't have enough hair to be a rock and roll legend. And I used to say, Phil Collins, you know, there was hope. Y'all don't, yeah. So music, for me, one of the early areas of Christ's lordship was what was I going to listen to. I know many of you can't relate to that. Some of you can. But that was a big, big thing to me and my friends because we were listening to the newest and the latest and always wanting to know. And there were ethical issues involved. And so when I started walking with Christ, I have weathered a lot of phases which Christians go through. And so I heard all of the teaching of that day. Most of y'all have never heard of a guy named Bob Larson. That name mean anything to you? Um, Bob Larson came on the scene and just basically said any, all music that's not Christian music was of the devil. The best thing that you can do as a sincere Christian is destroy all the secular music that you have. So more than one time I stood on a riverbank watching a friend of mine play Frisbee with his albums, sorry, so not CDs, but the big ones, not the little ones, because we were trying to follow the Lord. And then then along came Francis Schaeffer, who talked about all art uh, can be serving the Lord, art for art's sake. It doesn't have to fulfill a utilitarian purpose. You know, you don't have to put a Bible verse on a drawing of a tree to make it a Christian piece of art. Y'all, you know, I hope y'all, I'm covering, I'm covering a lot of ground, but this was key. This was, this was the kind of stuff that, that some of us really were in tune to. And so we kind of found a, a freedom, a different perspective from Francis Schaeffer than we had known from those that just said, this is right, this is wrong. And it was, we didn't know, how, how do you approach art? How do you approach media as a Christian? Then I heard Bill Gothard. And Bill Gothard at his conferences would promote the teachings of a man named Frank Garlock. And Frank Garlock said music, all music should be evaluated according to the beat and compared the beat to the beat of your heart. Now, this was, it was a simple way to follow it, Basically, it was this. In the human heart, the beat's there, but you can't, it's not throbbing. And therefore, if you start to throb and you feel your heart, then you're sick. Therefore, music with a throbbing beat was sick music. Did y'all go to Bill Gothard? Did y'all hear this? I mean, this was, um, well, that was another way to evaluate it. By and large, it became confusing after a while. And based on what church I was around, had had different views. And then I met Pat Terry. Y'all remember that name? He was a, there was the Metro Bible Study in Atlanta back in the, when was that? Middle 1970s. There were like two to 4,000, you know, things started in a house. And, and uh, Dan DeHaan taught the Metro Bible Study. What's that large church up there in Marietta? It's charismatic. Well, anyway, it, that played a big part in that. Dan DeHaan was killed in a plane crash flying back from Mississippi one night, and so Rat Riley then started teaching it. He came over, used to teach a large Bible study at Auburn. Thousands of people up there, and Pat Terry was a musician. And so I, when I graduated from college, I said, look, I want to go into Christian music from a production standpoint. And I wrote to him, and I went, and I met with him and his music, his band, and all those, and which stayed in custody, and talked about this whole thing of of music and what's Christian music or not. Well, I, my point, I'm belaboring the point, is that how do we evaluate music, movies, TV shows, magazines, 
is there a legitimate standard that's not, not just based on what some Bible teacher over here makes up in many cases? They make it up. Well, I do think the standard is verse 8. That's a good starting place. So I have to ask myself about the content of this movie or book. Is it true? Is it noble? Is it right? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it admirable? If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, if you put that criteria to what you put in your brain, what you think about, then I think that will serve you well. And I appreciate how the Lord leaves it up to us to understand what these things are based on his word, whatever is true, whatever is noble, and then we can make the call according to the time and history and the place and the language and the culture, whether we're in Japan or whether in the United States or um, Middle East. You know, we, we can ask those things. So as I go in a museum, as I go to a library to, or go on Amazon to purchase books, I need to think, or if someone says, well, let's go see this movie. Before I'll see a movie, I go to Kids in Mind. I go to that website, and I read the content. And it will say what words are said. It will give you the plot. It will give you the worldviews. And that's not a Christian site, but I just I typically start there. Um, because I'm trying to obey Philippians 4.8. That's why. And I can't look off into my friends to have already made that determination for me. And I'll have to make that determination. Verse 9, it was this fact which enabled Paul to have such a remarkable attitude in prison. Years of dwelling on the right things. Paul had trained his mind. And so he could be content even when he was in a place of deprivation like a Philippian prison. I want to conclude with some practical steps. Y'all still with me? Okay. Y'all aren't frozen, are you? It's kind of all right, it's all right in here. Everybody's got their heavy coats on. What are y'all expecting, a blizzard when you walk out? <laughs> That's about 15 miles to the east, right? When I, I, just looked at, I just looked at the weather before we started. Okay, here's some practical steps. Uh, I would urge you to memorize Philippians 4.8. Memorize that verse. Because you need a criteria, young people especially. Memorize that verse and carry that with you. And let it be a guide, let it be a uh, filter that you think about as you, um, as you make decisions. Obviously, second point I want to mention is be careful what you put into your mind. Uh, make wise decisions. Uh, not only what you don't think about, but what you do think about. And third, read, read, read. Use your mind to learn God's truth. Read things, read the Bible, read theology, read church history, read Christian biography, especially missionary biography. Those can make a huge impact. If you desire to grow spiritually and intellectually, you must be a reader. You must be a reader. And your reading needs to be selective because there isn't that much time to read a lot of stuff that isn't very, very good. I think our schools today, and I... And I and the church too probably, we often teach people how not to read. In other words, we say, tonight I want you to read 30 pages. Then the next day we say, did you read it? And they say, yeah, I read it. What did you read? Well, I don't know. I read it though. My eyes went over it. One of the best ways to read is to read a paragraph and then pause and then restate in one sentence the thoughts that you just read. Then read the next paragraph and then state, say, well, the key thought there was then read the next paragraph. And if you can't state the key thought, go back and read the paragraph again. 
Charles Spurgeon counseled his students, Master those books you have. Read them thoroughly. Bathe in them until they saturate you. Read and reread them. Digest them. Let them go into your very self. Peruse a good book several times and make notes and analyses of it. He said a student will find that his mental constitution is more affected by one book thoroughly mastered than by 20 books he merely skimmed. Little, I like this sentence, little learning and much pride comes from hasty reading. Little learning and much pride comes of hasty reading. Some people are disabled from thinking by their putting meditation away for the sake of much reading. In your reading, let your motto be much, not many. Much of the same books, rather than just saying, well, I've... my daughter was in the church office the other day, and there's hundreds of books in there. I have, I have books. You just collect books over the... Can you imagine if you live in one place about 30 years, how many mailing lists you get on? Well, at the same time, um, it's the same time, the books. And so she came in and said, Daddy, have you read all those books? I, and I wish I'd remembered that old line that said, some of them twice. <laughs> Think about it. Most are reference books. So no, I haven't read those books. I refer to them when I'm looking up some information. But here are some suggestions. Select carefully. Try 30 minutes a day. Read a paragraph and then say the key thought, like I just mentioned. And here's a really good, discuss the book with a friend. And of course, if you're reading the Bible, read with a willingness to obey. So ask for God's help in applying all of this to change you. There's a progressive nature to godliness as there is to wickedness. And maintain a pure, uncompromising walk with Christ as you go into 2011, as you think about next year. And realize there's no shortcut to spiritual growth. There is no shortcut. And like physical growth, it occurs slowly on a regular basis, depending upon the food and proper surroundings. People look for healthy, fit bodies in five minutes a day, and it ain't going to happen. Hey, I've been a member of the Wellness Center for about 12 years. You know what the first two weeks of January are going to be like at the Wellness Center? Crowds and the smell of Bengay. Um, <laughs> then middle of January, it'll be back to normal. Be back to the, the ones that have been going over there for a long time. I want to give you one very practical thing that I found about yesterday. Uh, if you... I want to tell you, and you may, if you have a pencil, partner to remember. It's a program, partnering to remember. This is a program that a guy named Justin Taylor, who I read a lot of his stuff, is promoting. Part, he's across the country, he's urging people to memorize Philippians between now and Easter. It's going to start the first week of January, and you can memorize, that's about 16 weeks, you memorize the book of Philippians, and he, he's, he's got some, down, I downloaded this last night, it's seven pages, whole pages, but then you cut them up. And so here, like, you, you download these, and here are the assignments. And there's week one, 
Philippians 1, 1 to 6, and you cut that, then that's week two, that's week three, and it goes through all the weeks, and it's got these pages that are helps by John Piper and others on memorization. It also links you to the moleskin company to where these are made, where you cut the page out and you put it there with double-sided tape. So you cut that out, you paste it in this size notebook that's very standardized, and then you write your thoughts over here as you memorize it. Now, I wish a lot of us, I, I bought, I ordered 12 of those little notebooks last night, hoping the staff will join with me and we're going to memorize, hopefully, Philippians by Easter. And I would urge you to go, look, just type in, I did it last night to try it out, partnering to, T-O, remember. And join with us starting the first week of January, and let's memorize Philippians between January 1 and Easter Sunday. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the capacity to think. Uh, we thank you for your word that's been revealed, and you've done it with words. You've done it with words and thoughts and sentences, and we often underestimate the influence for good that that can be in our lives and in the service of your kingdom. We pray that this coming year and even this coming week, you might help us to prioritize, according to your word, what we think about and what we dwell on and help us to think about your truth and not allow our minds just to be marinated in, in lies from the devil or bad thoughts or wicked thoughts or negative thoughts that are not in accord with your word. Uh, some of us here, Father, have limited how you use us with our thought lives and we have not even considered your promises or acted upon them. In many cases, we haven't even known them we certainly haven't recalled them when they were needed. So we pray that you'd help us in that regard this coming year. We pray as a church we might be a people that, as Colossians says, that the word of Christ richly dwells within us, in our families, uh, with our children, in our ministries, in our worship services, in our classes. Uh, may it be that we truly do not only read the word, but think the word and pray the word and sing the word, and preach the word. We uh, pray for strength in this coming year. We pray for opportunities to take advantage of in your service. We thank you most of all for Christ and the gospel. We pray that we would uh, be especially as sensitive to those around us who've suffered loss this past year, our neighbors, families, and uh, seek to minister to them. Be with us, guide us, and direct us. May your providential hand watch over us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> if you will, please stand as we uh, depart with God's blessing.